0: So in that passage in Isaiah chapter seven, we have the story two little boys. um, Nothing to do um, with the Rolf Harris song. Um, Probably, probably shouldn't mention Rolf Harris. Actually, is he not getting to is he did he get in jail for child abuse? I I thought he should have been put in jail for making a record as rubbish as Two Little Boys." I thought that was a criminal offence. Sentimental drivel. Anyway, Isaiah has nothing to do with Old Paris. Okay, two little two boys do appear in this passage that we read in Isaiah chapter seven. Yeah, the presence of children kind of heightens heightens feelings about things, doesn't it? Um, Like many, I was you know appalled when I got heard the story last weekend of the car in Wisconsin that drove into the um, the parade that was going on there, and five people had died, and then word came a few days later that a sixth person had died and it was an eight-year-old boy, and the fact that it's a young kid some does something else. Not that the other five people weren't important at all, but, you know, we hear of these things happening with children, some of the refugees who drowned, some of the children, and you feel it a bit more. It works the other way as well, we, when children do things, and very often people make more of a response because it's a kid. A seven-year-old has written to the prime minister. And the, the hope that he, no I didn't say in the hope that he could read, um, <laughs> he certainly had trouble with his speeches didn't he? But a seven year old has, has written and we thought oh that's great or, or a nine year old has done something that's raised funds for something else and and, and we, well, that's, that's, so we, we somehow, we feel more about it, we're more engaged somehow, we're more drawn in when when it's young children that are involved. And so, in Isaiah seven that's what we have, Isaiah's son is taken with Isaiah to meet the king in verses one to nine. And then in the second part of the reading, verses ten to seventeen, is reference to a young woman's son, still at this point in the story, unborn. Now, we need some background to get to know what was happening here. Israel had been split into two. Ten tribes of Israel had kept the name Israel, and they were the kingdom in the north. Two tribes were a much smaller country in Judah, in in the south. And both Israel and Judah, at this point in the story, are at a low ebb. They are economically in a bad place, socially, politically, and particularly spiritually, they're in a very bad place. The whole country's in, in something of a doldrums. And part of the problem was there was this big empire of Assyrians who were flexing their muscles and, and kind of just ready to, to, to come in and, and, and take control. And some of the small countries thought, there's no way we can fight against the Assyrians. No way. They are, but maybe if we got together, maybe if we formed a pact, together we might be able to Get the Assy- fight against the Assyrians. And so some of the countries, small countries, including the ten tribes in the north, including Israel, started to do that. And Israel said to Judah, the smaller country in the south, come and join us. And Judah said, the king of Judah said, No. Now, most of us would have left it there, but not this lot, not in those days, and so Israel and Aram decide, well, we're going to go and teach Judah a lesson. How dare they say no? So they, they start to making plans to invade, and they march up, verse 1, to fight against Jerusalem. And King Ahaz, the king of Judah, he's uh, thinking, what am I going to do? These guys, okay, it's not the Assyrians, but nevertheless, they're, they're better than we are. What are we going to do? I know, I'll I'll ask the Assyrians for help. Now that's a bit like a a small mouse who's getting bullied by a bigger mouse saying to the cat, come and give us a hand, will you? (laughs) Okay, the cat can beat the bigger mouse, but then the cat's left with the small mouse, what do you think's going to happen? And that's what, basically that's what he was trying to do. We can't Beat Israel and, and Aram, Assyria, come over here and help us. And so Isaiah was sent by God to speak to King Ahaz of Judah, verse 3. And he's given the message: strengthful rises. We wait upon the Lord, wait on God, trust God. His words included, verse 4, a sharp political analysis of the situation. They were saying, he was saying, Syria, or Aram, is it Syria, and they are not to be confused with Assyria, um, they were these, these people that you're scared of, you shouldn't worry them. They're just like um, smoldering stubs of firewood. They're, they're, they're almost, they're almost, they're fag ends. You know, they're, they're basically fag ends. They're not going to last. And you don't need to hang on to your doubts. Uh-huh. Sorry, I should have resisted, but I couldn't. <laughs> don't hang on to your doubts. These fag games are going to burn out. You know, this, this, you don't worry about this. But Ahaz wouldn't trust God. Ahaz is, should not be selling the nation's soul to Assyria because he is scared of the, Israel and Palsam in the north. He should depend on God. He should trust God's promises. That's Isaiah's message he's got a choice to make. Either trust in your political scheming, and let's face it, your political scheming is pretty daft, asking the cat for help. Either do that or trust God. You should be trusting God. And this is where his son came in. Isaiah had taken his son along. His son um, was called Shear Jashub. Um, Prophets had a talent for naming their children. And Basically, the name of the child means a remnant will return. That was his name. That is, here's the sign: a remnant will return. And Isaiah is so serious about this message that God has given him that that's how He's named his son. Ahaz, you, you you think political scheming is going to get you out of this? It will not. Trust God, because God will make sure. Your people and Judah remain safe and in the God's, God's plans. That is, he's being asked to trust. Now, that, that is basically the, the call of the gospel, to trust. The call of the gospel is not just to believe in God, but to trust. A number of years ago, a man called Blondin was famous for all kinds of walking along wires he would, and his most famous show was when he put the tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he walked on the tightrope across Niagara Falls. And then he did it pushing a wheelbarrow right across Niagara Falls. And then he put a bag of potatoes, a big bag of potatoes, in the wheelbarrow and pushed it across with all that weight on it. And then he said to one of the folks who were watching him, do you think I could do it with a person in the wheelbarrow and not, not a bag of potatoes? Do you think I could do it with a person? And the person said, yes, I'm sure you could. Well, you can guess what Blondin said next. Get in. Now that's the test, isn't it? That, that's what trust is. Trust is saying, not just, oh yeah, I think you can do that, but trust is, I'm, I'm, I will put my life in your hands. I will commit myself. Now, I wouldn't have gotten that wheelbarrow because, you know, not because I don't think Blondin could do it, but I just think, what is there to gain getting over to the other side? Um, I'm going to have to get back again. I've left my car over the other side, you know, there's nothing to gain for it. So the illustration breaks down there, but but that, that's exactly the, the kind of thing that the gospel leaves us with. Will we trust God? Will we see here at the promised land, the promises of God, of His ultimate kingdom of peace and beauty and justice and forgiveness and everything else, will we trust God enough to say, God, as it were, I will get in the wheelbarrow. It's worth getting over there. What you promise is good, what you're working out and your purposes for humanity is is good. Therefore, I will do what it takes to get there. And what it takes to get there is the spiritual equivalent of getting into the wheelbarrow. It's to saying, I'm trusting Jesus and only trusting Jesus. Not I believe in I'm not, I think you could do this, Jesus. But saying, I will follow to the point of, I will trust you and put my life in your hands. Ahaz wouldn't do it. And to help Ahaz, then Isaiah says, we'll give you another sign, verses 10 to 17, the second half of the reading. Ahaz, notice, tries to put a religious gloss on his disobedience. Well, I don't really want a sign. I I will not put the Lord to the test, verse 12. And certainly we wouldn't recommend telling God to give us signs before we do anything. But it's a perverse thing to turn down a sign that God offers to us. So Isaiah told Ahaz, you're going to get a sign anyway. The sign, verse 14, is a son not yet born. Now Matthew, writing many years later in his gospel, saw this prophecy as a word about Jesus. And it is. But before it's a word about Jesus... It's a word to Ahaz. How could Jesus being born be a sign for Ahaz? Ahaz, you're about to get a sign about what you should be doing. Not trusting Assyria, but trusting the Lord. You're going to get a sign to show you that's what you should be doing. But that sign's not going to turn up for another 800 years. Well, that doesn't make sense, does it? Rather, the sign is... Already, Isaiah, back in chapter 1, had called the city of Jerusalem a virgin daughter, and he's saying, he's saying to Hazel, he has, look, by the time it takes for a child to conceive, be born, and for that ch- child to learn right from wrong, verse 15, by the time that happens, Israel and, 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 and Aram will not be there to, dist- to bother you. And the thing is, if you've brought Assyria into it, they're not going to stop because they've got the big mouse. They're going to come for the small mouse as well. Don't do it. But just as there was with boy one, Isaiah's son, in the name that the remnant will return, just as there was with him, so, there was, so with this promise signed to Ahaz, there was a word of hope beyond devastation. It's a word from a God who can bring salvation, even out of judgment. Who can allow a destructive enemy to flourish, but still will ultimately be gracious to his people. A God who can and a God who will bring a renewed people to birth through pain and judgment. Because this God is truly with his people. In a far, far fuller sense than Isaiah could have dreamt, that word of God, that promise of salvation, in and through and despite judgment, would be fulfilled by another son, the one born of a virgin, Jesus of Nazareth, God with us. It's all part of the same work of God, all part of the same God story. Here is a sign, Ahaz, about what you have to do in the short term, but here too is a sign pointing even further forward, a bit like when you look in the distance and you see two two hills, and and you think from from a long way off that they're right beside each other, they're right up against each other, but in fact there's quite a wee bit of gap between them, or a big bit of gap between them when you get up close. In the same way, Isaiah's prophecy was both for Ahaz, but also beyond that, hundreds of years later, to be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the son born of a virgin, whose life will say, we're not putting judgment of God to the side. Crucifixion was going to come. But even beyond and through judgment, there is to be salvation. That is the message for Ahaz. That's the message for people today. God is concerned that things should get sorted out. He's not turning a blind eye to the things that are wrong and sin. And he will take us to that promised land. There will be that fulfillment, ultimately, of the kingdom of God. We've been given signs of it here and now. And we've been given the challenge about whether or not we'll get in the wheelbarrow in terms of trusting Jesus to take us there. For the message is that God is always faithful. The Lord stays with his people. And this time of waiting, which is one of Advent's main themes, is not waiting that is pointless or fruitless because God keeps his word. Many years after Isaiah spoke, Jesus came, fulfilling on another level not just the words of verse 14, but the promises of God doing a new work, a new rescue, a new salvation. And yet we cannot presume upon God's grace. Verse 17, the last verse of our reading, tells us that grace was going to pass Ahaz by. Was it because God took a dislike to him? No. Was it because God was going to forget about him? No. It was because he did not, he would not trust. In all likelihood, he remained a man who believed in God, But that's not the same as trusting. He was the kind of person who would say to God, Yes, of course you can take that wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. Of course you can. I'm sure you can do it. But I'm not going to put my life in your hands. And that's not what God asks, not what God calls for. So then, two little boys, each of them a sign. And on the subject of signs, today we baptize not a little boy, but Anna, a girl. But baptism is also a sign, a sign of the very same gospel. And like the rest of the gospel, it is something to be trusted in and something that calls for a response from us. Again, baptism is a sign pointing to the promises of God's Word. It is not a promise that someone will always be in good health or always be happy, that they will succeed in whatever they want to put their mind to. It is a promise about the faithfulness of God to bring us salvation, for His peace, His pardon, His dignity, for love and joy and more to be given to us because they are found in Christ. That is what the baptism is pointing to. In His time and in His way, Ahaz had to decide if he could trust what Isaiah was saying or whether he was going to rely on his own ability to scheme, to think things out for himself, to do it his way. That's the choice that we have too. Advent. Is a time for rehearsing the great promises of the story of God coming to His God with us, for checking out our lives according to these promises. A God who, as Isaiah shows us, and we see it going into the New Testament, keeps His Word and says, you can trust me, jump in.